Dr. Milo Thompson, and it is a delight. Um, he's been to our church before, so he's really not new to us. And uh, I kind of joke around a little bit, but um, it's just fun to see an individual who is mature in age and not bitter, still serving God, and willing to transfer what God has worked out in their life to us. Comes to us with a rich heritage uh, from not just involved in Bible colleges, but also local churches. And for the last 15 years or more, with Christ Way Ministries, um, traveling across North America and around the world, looking at churches. That's something that we don't get a chance to do a lot of. And so sometimes we get stuck in, okay, this is what church constitutes. And he brings with him a tremendous amount of wisdom and experience. But the part that really thrills me is that he hasn't bought into the cultural norm. It's biblically based. And folks, that's what we're looking for. And I trust as we jump in here tonight that um, our, our hearts and minds will be open to what the Spirit of God wants to tell us as it relates to local church ministries, and in particular, your church. And for those of us here at the Peoples, or others that are here tonight from other churches, we've got a couple other churches here tonight, so that's good. So let's welcome Milo tonight, and uh, let's give him a good warm welcome. Looking forward to what he is going to share. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pastor. Uh, it's a joy for me to be able to be here and come back again. Uh, we were here last November, my wife and I. Uh, Jackie, my wife, is a sister to Connie. Dowie, if you want to make a connection. And uh, Jackie is the oldest sibling in the family, and she and Connie are very close. There are five sisters and two brothers, and Connie and Jackie are very tight. And they talk together all the time on Skype, Facebook. And uh, so we had to come up, and we brought with us uh, Connie's mom and dad, who have not seen Phil for three years. And they were deeply concerned, wanting to see him, and... So we brought them along with us, and uh, so it's a joy to be able to be here and participate in this. Uh, Pastor, I want to thank you for the opportunity. I wouldn't be here if you hadn't invited me, so it's very I'm very grateful. I grew up on a dairy farm in central New York State, and uh, my mom and dad were not saved. I was not raised in a saved family. It was not until after I got out of high school that the Lord worked in my heart and life and brought me to himself. I was going down a different path. When I was a senior in high school, <clears throat> I was interested in medicine. I would have loved to have been a surgeon. And I used to help a veterinarian operate on cows. And uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. And... Uh, I applied to Cornell University and was accepted in their medical program, and then I got saved. And almost immediately, God began to deal with my heart about not working on bodies, but on souls, something more eternal in nature. 
And uh, so I've spent my life doing that. And uh, it's been a wonderful journey. I was a pastor for nearly 30 years. And then I was 15 years president of the, of the college and seminary. And now I've been traveling for 16 years since then. And as Wayne mentioned, across the country and in 20 different countries, I've helped missionaries. Because around the world, basically, the message that I speak to resonates. They say that's exactly what we're wrestling with. And I think one of the common denominators that is making that happen is the Internet. I think the Internet has helped them to come to grips with some of the issues that are happening and cultures are changing in all the countries, and they're wrestling with the same kind of things. How do we do ministry in this day and age? If you're good with math, you probably add it up, but I've been in the ministry now for about 60 years, and so I'm not a new kid on the block. Hopefully I haven't fossilized too much and uh, will still be relevant and be able to be helpful to uh, churches and pastors. Uh, I have pastored uh, all-sized churches. When I first got out of uh, college, the Lord uh, entrusted to me a church that had about 20 people in attendance. And uh, so I went from that to uh, churches across the board in the spectrum. Uh, the last church before I became the president was a church running over a 1,000 and uh, been both in the country church and rural church and city church. So in my experience, somehow God was preparing me to do a lot of the things that I think I'm doing today and try to help people and help churches. Uh, my theory about workshops is that uh, I'm confident when I go to a workshop or a seminar, not everything is going to work for me because we're different and our situations are different, and I recognize that. And I possibly won't agree with everything either, and that's okay. I don't let that stop me from gaining some benefit out of every seminar I go to and trying to learn and find out more so that I can serve my Lord in a better, fuller fashion. And uh, so God has allowed me to grow, and I still am trying to grow. I read more than one book a month yet, and trying to stay ahead of what's happening. And yet I don't know everything. I feel sometimes a little like a scientist who developed a discipline that was well-received around the world. He became world-renowned. And he began to be a speaker all over the place. And so much so that his university, where he was a professor, uh, provided a chauffeur and a, lim a car for him to get to a lot of his speaking. And uh, one morning, he was not feeling well, and he was to speak at probably the greatest opportunity he'd ever had. Here were a couple hundred people in his discipline well-known people, and here he was to deliver the major address to them. And he got up and he was sick. And he said to his chauffeur, I don't know what to do. I uh, really don't want to miss this. Chauffeur said, well, sir, I've heard that speech so many times I could give it word for word. Why don't you let me give it? So they finally agreed that they would do that. 
So the chauffeur put on the scientist's suit, and the scientist put on the chauffeur's outfit, and he went to it, and he sat on the front row, and uh, the chauffeur got up, and he gave the speech flawlessly. He didn't miss a word. And he started to go away from the podium, and this guy stood up and said, Sir, wait a minute, I got a question. Wait. And the scientist sat down there, ooh, I wonder what he's going to do with this. And the chauffeur walked back to the podium, and he said, Sir, that question is so elemental, I can even ask my chauffeur down here to answer it. <laughs> and uh, so you can ask me anything you want, and I got a pinch hitter right here who's going to get up. <laughs> so anyway... I don't know everything to know about a topic, but I'll share with you what I do know and what I have experienced. We're going to be talking about maximum ministry fruitfulness. And uh, I want that to become very real to you. We've already gone over the outline or the morning, and tonight and tomorrow morning's uh, schedule. Most likely, there will be something that I will say that you're going to say, mm, that's hard, I'm not sure, or I'm going to, if you're comfortable in something, I may push you a little out of your comfort zone, and I hope that you will do exactly what the Bereans did with Paul when Paul was speaking. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, that's none other than the Apostle Paul speaking. But you notice where the authority was. The authority was not in a man. The authority was not in Paul. The authority was in the scriptures. And therefore, they searched the scriptures daily after Paul spoke to see whether these things were so. So I hope that that will be true with you as I speak here this weekend, that you are not going to use me as the authority, but you're going to use the Scriptures. And let the Scriptures speak to you, and you're going to search the Scriptures to see if those things that I have brought to your attention are so. Uh, we're living in a day when church ministry is really struggling a great deal. And uh, to help you understand that, let me throw up some statistics here for you. A majority of churches are in decline. And let me show you the data. This comes from more than one study. And they all basically agree the same thing. God has allowed me to have ministry in these 15 years with more than 500 churches that I've been in and shared in their ministry. And I just, in a superficial way, would say these statistics are right on. This is what I experience as I travel in the churches. 80% of all evangelical fundamental churches in America are in decline. 80%. 15% are plateaued. In other words, they're trying to maintain. They're trying to stay the same year after year. And only 5% of the churches in America are growing. 
those who are preaching the gospel, who are preaching the word of God, evangelical fundamental churches. There's a very clear evidence of a lack of evangelism. The average church in all these studies that I have read is three people or less coming to Christ per year. That's pretty significant and sad at the same time. Over half had no converts last year. A couple of years ago, one of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant church in America, <clears throat> told me that they had 10,000 churches that did not win a single soul to Christ in a year. 10,000. It's not uncommon for me to speak to a group of pastors this size, and we will go around and say, how many people were saved and baptized in your church last year? Half of them will have to say, none. I have hardly ever had anybody tell me more than five or six. We are not seeing a lot of people saved in our churches. Frequently, a church that may be growing in numbers, it is transfer growth. It's people coming out of other churches that are already believers. And because something's happening over here in this church, or they got a new pastor or some new thing happening, and people are drawn there and they're encouraging their friends to come there. So that church is growing in numbers, <clears throat> but they're not really seeing a lot of people getting saved. In America, the average attendance <coughs> is, in 1992, 104 attenders. In 2003, 90 attenders. And furthermore, in 2010, 78 attenders. Which direction is that going? Uh, so we're talking about pretty serious stuff here this weekend. I'm not sure this is how God wants it to be coming about. He's in the business of building his church. And we need to be helping him. Church is not ours. It's his church. And we ought never to forget that. This church is not the pastor's church. It is not the deacon's church. It is not even the congregation's church. It's God's church. And we, I don't think he can be pleased with what's really happening in our churches. In fact, here's a very, very grievous statistic. How many churches in America are going out of existence each year? 3,500 to 4,000 will be closing their doors this year in America. That is a sobering, sobering thought. Especially when you stop to realize, I don't think it's God's desire for churches to close. He wants them to be vibrant and dynamic and growing in spirituality and numerically. And we ought to be doing what we can to make that happen. 
When I uh, finished up at the college and seminary, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do at that point. I knew it was time for me to step out of that role of uh, leading the college and seminary, which had been a dynamic time. We almost tripled the enrollment while I was there and set a lot of other records. And 20% uh, of all the graduates in the college and seminary ended up on foreign soil as missionaries while I was there. Uh, just some awesome things were happening. But yet I knew it was time for me to put the reins in younger hands. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I was contacted right away by about six churches asking me if I would consider candidating. But I didn't get peace about any of that. And some of my friends across the country contacted me and said, what are you going to do? And I told them, well, I thought about pastoring one more time because I really enjoyed pastoring. Or I thought about having some sort of a ministry among the churches. Every one of them said, you need to have a ministry among the churches. God has allowed you to pastor and to be in higher education, and you need to share with people. And he filled my schedule, and that's what I've been on this journey ever since and just trying to keep up with him and follow what he wants me to do. So in the process, I formed Christway Ministries. That, doesn't, that name doesn't mean it's a big organization. It involves me and the guy that was the dean of the seminary in Clark Summit. I brought him to the position, and he now is retired from that, and he's assisting me full-time, Dr. Howard Bixby. And uh, the two of us are just busy in trying to help churches and figure out how to do ministry. And Christway Ministries, let me just tell you quickly about it. Our motto is building dynamic, growing churches Christ's way for his glory. Uh, we're not talking about a canned approach where I come in here and lay out this program, this canned thing. No, I'm coming in here to try to stir your thinking by getting you into the scriptures and realizing that God, who is building his church, has some things about how to build that church. If you're going to build something, it's going to grow. And I want to try and help you focus on those and think about them and see what there is there that you can pull out that will be helpful. We have a ministry with pastors and churches which involves uh, Sundays, weekends, uh, we are, Primary Howard is involved in doing a formal consultation with churches where he spends three months visiting the site three times, helping churches figure out their strengths and their weaknesses and their opportunities and a ministry approach to that. Uh, he has had awesome success in doing that. We do a lot of coaching which means I spend a lot of luncheons with pastors, coaching. We talk about their ministry and how they're doing. How can I help them? Coaching. We have a lot of materials that we make available. We have a monthly e-newsletter, and that is done by uh, uh, the computer. And if you would like to be on that list tomorrow, I'll bring a paper and you can uh, sign up for it if you would like to get that. We have a website, ChristwayMinistries.us, 
and I'll give you a lot more information about who we are and what we're doing. People ask me frequently, how are you financially supported? And we are supported by the gifts of uh, God's people and churches. We don't have a denomination that supports us. We don't have a big church that supports us. Uh, we don't have a foundation that supports us. But just the gifts of God's people who keep us going and uh, doing what we are doing. That's just a quick thumbnail sketch. It is possible <clears throat> to move to the dynamic growing church level, both in deepening spiritually in the church, as well as numerical growth, and to do it without compromise. Somehow we have the conception among some people that if you become a bigger church, you had to compromise. You couldn't get there any other way. And they use all kinds of uh, really straw men sometimes, uh, thinking that you cannot possibly grow. They're not growing, and they don't think you can grow unless you do something to compromise to grow. I want to go on record tonight. That does not have to be true. We can be true to the Scriptures and we don't need to compromise in order to be able to grow. And I hope you will come to understand that. Some of the ministry we've had with churches, let me give you some illustrations. In Rochester, New York, there was a church probably 12 years ago now who the pastor came to one of the seminars I do for two days. And he got at the end, and he'd just come to his church. He'd been there a couple of years, and he said, would you come and help me? I'm having trouble. And uh, he was having trouble, big time trouble. And uh, so I went there for a weekend, Friday night through Sunday night. At that time, their church was plateaued, running about 250 people. Now, 12 years later, last Easter, they had 2,927 people in their multiple services on the weekend. Two years ago, Easter Sunday, they had 150 adults come forward and were saved and have gone on. They haven't compromised a thing, but they have figured out how to do ministry in our day and age. And tomorrow morning, we're going to be talking about some of the possible impediments they keep a church from growing and reaching people. Uh, go to a country church, Montrose, Pennsylvania. A young pastor, his first time being a senior pastor, was called to the Baptist church there in Montrose. They had never been bigger than 150 people. And they asked Howard Bixby if he would help them. Uh, the young man had been in some of his classes in seminary, and he said, would you come and help me? And he has helped him, and uh, this past year, they had a Sunday where they reached 1,865 people. Friends, we're talking about a town of 1,800 people. They finally figured out how to do it how to live out the Bible, how to do what God wants done in order to help build his church. 
Each of these places have seen just scores saved. Here's another one that's just a thrill to me. I had a young kid, and when I was pastoring, I had a young kid running around in the Sunday school, and uh, he finally got old enough and was saved, and, and I baptized him. And then when he graduated from high school, he went away to Bible college down in Clark Summit and graduated, and he took a small church pastorate right there in Clark Summit of 30 people. That was 25 years ago. Last year, he had a high Sunday of 3,620 people in multiple services. It can be done. You don't have to. I'm laying out figures that you'll never reach here in this church because you don't have the potential in this area. But I'm just doing it to stretch you and make you see that you don't have to compromise the Word of God and the message of God, but how you do ministry is going to be very, very important as to whether you're going to reach people or not. Uh, So the basic premise of this seminar is trying to look at this world that we are living in through the heart and life of Jesus. Do you ever stop to do that? Think about how did Jesus live? What was his heart? What was his life? How did he do what he did when he was here on this earth? And I want as a person and as a church that I might be leading to be able to look at how I should be seeing this world How should I react to this world? How should I try to do ministry in this world? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he's the builder of the church and he wants to build a church. And if I am declining as a church, if I am plateaued as a church, there's something serious about our giving thought to why are we plateaued? Why are we declining? Why aren't we reaching people? And there are reasons. Here's a verse that I hope you'll wrap around your arms around and your heart around and think about. In Acts 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and increased in number daily. It's a twofold growth issue. Growing in a deeper life, growing in a spiritual relationship that is is growing all of the time with our Lord, as well as being able to grow numerically as we are reaching out into our community and reaching increasing numbers of people. Uh, that's a great verse, Acts 16.5. That would characterize the churches of that day. See, all the statistics that I laid out here for you this evening, this would not characterize those churches. A great number of churches today are declining, are plateaued. They are not being strengthened in the faith. They are not increasing in number. 
daily. But the churches in the book of Acts were. So consequently, the mission of each of our churches should be something like making more and better followers of Jesus. Uh, that ought to drive us. That ought to be our mission. That ought to be what we're about. And that is that we are going to see more followers of Jesus all the time and better followers, deeper, more spiritual, more godly, more mature believers. Okay, you have a document in there, just sort of an executive statement summary of what I'm going to be talking about this weekend, looking at this world through the heart and life of Jesus. Okay, I'm... What time am I supposed to quit? 8.30. So, we got a lot of ways to go here. Anytime you get sleepy, just stand up for a while. Just don't fall asleep while you're standing up. But uh, feel free to move around or do what you got to do. So we're going to be right here at this point, developing a mindset of turning from stagnation and decline and reaching for maximum fruitfulness. Deep in the backwoods of Letcher County, Kentucky. Anybody ever been to or from Letcher County, Kentucky? You have, okay. Uh, I asked somebody to raise their hand when I was speaking one time, and she said, I grew up there. She was the medical doctor who was in the church, and she said she grew up here. And what I described here, she said, was very accurate. Uh, Deep in the woods of Letcher County, Kentucky, a hillbilly's wife went into labor in the middle of the night. And the doctor was called out to assist in the delivery. Since there was no electricity throughout the area, the doctor handed the father-to-be a lantern. It's the middle of the night. He said, here, you hold us high so I can see what I'm doing. Soon a baby boy was brought into the world. Whoa there, said the doctor, don't be in such a rush to put the lantern down. I think there's another one coming. Sure enough, within minutes, he had delivered a baby girl. Wait, the doctor said, hold that lantern up, don't set it down, there's another one. And within a few minutes, he delivered a third baby. Wait, he said, there's yet another one coming, hold that lantern up. And the redneck scratched his head in bewilderment, and he asked the doctor, you reckon it might be the light that's attracting him? <laughs> Some of our churches are not sure what's happening either. And uh, hopefully we can help them because there are answers, and hopefully we can get at those answers so that we can understand how we can help the Lord build his church. There's a couple of uh, indicators of crisis that's happening in our churches. And number one, it is Jesus' will that individual believers and each local church pursue the experience of bearing much fruit, much fruit. I'm going to build a case 
that God wants our churches to move to the level of much fruit. Okay? This is where it may get some uncomfortableness. But I hope you'll hang with me and think about it and let God speak to your heart about it. The text we're going to be looking at is John 15. That's a very familiar text to you, I think. If you've been in church much, you'll have to acknowledge that it's a passage you know quite a lot about. But I want for you to think about that passage in a deeper way, maybe, than you have before. And let's see what it says. Jesus is instructing his disciples on fruit bearing in this text. There are three vital relationships and responsibilities. Let me lay them out for you. Number one, you'll see that there needs to be a vital relationship with Jesus. And we have vital responsibilities that I'll also put up in a minute. In verses 11 to 17 in chapter 15, he's talking about our relationship with each other as fellow believers. And finally, in verses 18 to chapter 16 and verse 4, he's talking about our relationship to the world. Unbelievers. What's our responsibility to Jesus? We are to abide in him. To remain in him. For him to increasingly become our life. What's our responsibility to believers? He tells us we are to love each other, to have unity, and uh, to become one with each other. And thirdly, what's our responsibility to the world? We're to be a witness to the world. We are to share Christ with them in a meaningful way that is going to produce fruit. Now, let's go a little deeper into the text. In John 15, 1, we have one of the seven great I am statements that John uses. This is one of those statements where in John 1, 15, 1, and the Father is portrayed as the owner and gardener of the vineyard. And his will is to be done with the vine and the branches. And we must never forget that. Church is God's idea, and he's the owner. Not us. So it's not my will, it's his will, should be done. And we must reflect that. The Father and the vine are portrayed in this text very strongly as one with the expectation that we as branches and churches as branches will develop the same oneness that the Father and the Son have. And that's a huge effort. And things can break it up. Thirdly, in this text, the Father is cultivating his vineyard and he's protecting the branches so as to accomplish his purpose of fruit-bearing. It is his purpose that every believer and every church become fruit bearers. No exceptions. 
How do I know that? In these 16 verses, you will see him refer to fruit bearing and fruitfulness eight times. It is clear this text is talking about the issue of bearing fruit. And Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, his followers, and he wants us to understand that we are to be about the business of fruit bearing. Now, another thing that you need to capture is that the early church really understood this. Have you ever thought about the amount of times that you're going to find in the, in the book of Acts how the early church really captured what Jesus was teaching about bearing fruit? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, they grew by 3,000 people in one day. In Acts 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. In Acts 4, verse 4, the number had grown to be about 5,000. In Acts 5, and verse 14, it's up to the point where it's impossible to count numbers, exact numbers, but it's multitudes of people now have become followers. Of Jesus. And one more, Acts 16 and verse 5, they increased in number daily. They really captured what Jesus is teaching in John 15 about bearing fruit. And I ask churches all the time today, does that characterize you? With that kind of verbiage, be an accurate portrayal of your church? That you are seeing those kinds of increases? That kind of growth? That's what the early church experienced. And I don't think... Uh, we, ha we have to agree, I think, with the statement that God does expect growth in his churches. He expects it. That's what he's saying in John 15. And that's what the early church modeled. Now keep going with me in John 15. These verses are expressing the Father's will relative to maximum fruit bearing. Not just some fruit bearing. Uh, people will say, well, we saw one person saved last year. That's wonderful that one person was saved. But I don't think that portrays what this text is teaching. Hang with me. There are four levels of fruit bearing that are mentioned in John 15. And you're going to see a progression. Verse 2, there was no fruit mentioned. Does not bear fruit. In verse 2, next, he says there was some fruit that bears fruit. And in verse 2, one more step up, more fruit bears more fruit. And finally, in verse 5, that bears much fruit. So it goes from no fruit to some fruit to more fruit to much fruit. 
fruitfulness in this text is a result of the Son's life being lived out in each believer and in the church. To the degree that we allow Jesus Christ to live his life out in us, we will bear fruit. So if you're in a church that's not seeing much fruit born, I want to suggest to you, you're in a church where the son's life is not being lived out appropriately. You may have lots of words that say, try to say that it is, but the evidence is very clear. He is saying, without me, you can do nothing. And if nothing is happening, it's because he's not there. You may talk about him, but he's not there. Uh, there is a powerful difference when I go from one church to another. I'm in churches that are so dead. There is so little spiritual life there. All oh, their meeting Sunday morning for Sunday school, and their meeting in the morning service, and their meeting Sunday night in the service, and their meeting Wednesday night in the service, and they've got a wana humming, and they've got all these different things happening. But you can tell there is no spiritual life there. They're just going through routines, playing church. And then I'm in a church where they went from 250 to almost 3,000 in 12 years. And I want to tell you there is such a difference of the spirit in that church. You know Jesus is there. <clears throat> it's powerful. And uh, the issue is the son's life being lived out or whether it is purely people living out their own life, although they have the right words most of the time. Here's a kicker that has a lot of conviction in it. In verse 8, you're going to see that the Father is glorified the greatest not when we bear no fruit. Not when we bear some fruit. Not when we bear more fruit. But verse 8, listen to the words. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Jesus said what class? When is the Father glorified? when you bear much fruit. That's convicting. I think the purpose of every church ought to be that you're trying to pray and seek God's face and come to the place where you're moving from maybe little fruit to more fruit, but ultimately your heart drives you. You've got to get to the level of much fruit for God. It can be done. I've seen it happen. I've experienced it in my own life. I, Towards the end of my pastoral ministry, I was pastor of a church that was loaded with sin when I went there. It came out in time that a pastor of that church 
had had sexual relations with 19 women in that congregation. I thought I was never going to get to the bottom of that cesspool. But we finally did. And God began to bless. We began to see some fruit. We began to see more fruit. And finally we got to the level where we were seeing 200 adults saved and baptized in a year. I was baptizing every month 15 to 25 adults. It was awesome. I mean, there was a spiritual energy in that church. People didn't want to go home. They didn't want to go away for the week. They couldn't wait until Sunday got there to see what God was going to do. Just for me to think about it, sends goosebumps up my back to think about what God was doing. That's what I think He wants us to strive for. I think that's what He wants us to give ourselves to. He wants us to come to that place. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach us with John 15 in this awesome, awesome text. Now with that in mind, I want to uh, cover with you quickly the historical stages of any church or any ministry within a church. Okay? Follow it with me. You got some notes there, but you don't have the bell curve. <laughs> okay? Most any church started with somebody who had an original dream. They were excited about that dream. They had a lot of passion about that dream. Oh, we ought to have a church. We ought to have God place for God to work and for us to congregate and grow in the Lord. Every church had somebody who had an original dream about what could be. Secondly, they had to work on their beliefs and their values and their organizational structure that they were going to have. You understand what I mean by values? Every church has values. Not all of them have them written down. Many are growing in writing out their values, what's really important to them. This is not their doctrinal statement. This is things that are valuable to them. Like Andy Stanley. Have you all heard of Andy Stanley? Okay, he's written out his values. One is biblical authority. Another is intimacy with God. Third are relevant environments in the church. Everything that happens in the church has a relevant environment. In other words, it's a place where it's relevant. People want to be there. Uh, for example, a lot of Sunday night services in the States are increasingly not relevant. <laughs> and people aren't going, aren't attending Sunday night services because it wasn't relevant, it wasn't meaningful to them. Another Andy Stanley has is relational evangelism. In other words, you don't just barge into people's lives and drop a bombshell and walk out of their life, but you build a relationship with people, unsaved people, so that you can witness to them. Another is authentic community where there is 
accountability, belonging, care, spiritual growth. And on he goes. He has a couple more. But he has written out their values, what they value as a church. You've got to establish that early on in the history of a church. Your beliefs, what is this church going to believe? These are the things that are part of our doctrinal statement. This is our test of fellowship. If you're going to be part of us, this is what you've got to believe. Secondly, our values. Thirdly is organization. How are we going to organize ourselves? And uh, the early church had organization. And our churches need to have organization. Sometimes over the years, our churches have become over-organized. They've got too many committees. And I don't know how many committees you got, Sarah, so if I'm stepping on somebody's toes, just don't. Don't uh, take it. Huh? I got steel toes on. Oh, you got steel toes on? You came prepared tonight? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, That kind of a thing. So organization can either keep a church bound up and kept from doing its work very easily and efficiently. Organization is very important. I don't have time to go into all of that. I have a seminar, but I don't have time tonight. Uh, Purposes, mission, need to be formulated. What's our purpose as a church? What's our mission as a church? And uh, you can mark it down that God has made that known to us in the New Testament. He's told us what our purpose is. And you need to sort it out and uh, understand it, that this is our purpose as a church. Once you make that clear, then you're ready to think about vision and programs. What programs do we need in order to fulfill our mission? Many churches today have become program-driven and not mission-driven. God is the one who gave us the mission. He did not give us the programs. Think about that. Why didn't God give us the programs he wanted us to use? Take evangelism. Over the years, my 60 years in ministry, there have been a lot of different programs that have been used for reaching lost people. I don't find any of them in the Bible. They're all man-made. See, God didn't give us the programs because cultures are different and the generation that you find yourself doing ministry in is going to be different. And therefore, he does not give us programs to do the ministry. So don't allow the programs to become the thing that drives your church. In other words, don't come to the place, this may shake you up a little bit. We can't possibly not have a Sunday school. Do you know when Sunday schools began? Anybody got a chapter and verse that tells us that we ought to have a Sunday school? There isn't any. That's a man-made program started by people trying to fulfill their mission. And the first one that was started was in the late 1800s. Before that, they never had a Sunday school. So the question maybe sometimes we have to come to ask Is the Sunday school really meeting part of our mission? 
There are five things in the mission that God has given to us that I'll cover tomorrow in more detail. But that's the next step. And all of this is happening so that you can get to this step and you're going to increasingly build a ministry that is going to have much fruit. Not just going through all of this, not hardly ever seeing anybody saved, and not seeing people grow in the faith and all of that. We've got to come to the place where we achieve much fruit. And when you reach this point, it's a time for you not to sit back and say, we have arrived. No. You, that's not the place to do it. And I'm going to give you some bad English to try to impress this on your mind. Have you ever heard this phrase? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That is terrible advice in spiritual things and church work. If you take that step and you allow that to happen, you're going to quickly move into a maintenance mode. And then you're going to begin to go to the next step. Decline is going to set in. And you're going to begin to go downhill. Increasingly less achievement. Less fruit. A growing amount of nostalgia. Do you remember back there when we saw all of those people get saved? Do you remember back there when we were growing so dynamically we had to have a new addition on the building? Nostalgia. Next step comes questions begin to escalate. Uh, they become critical of leadership. They become critical of others in the church. There begin to be accusations. We're not doing things right around here anymore. We need to get back to, and etc. all kinds of questions. And then polarization begins to come in. Whenever you have polarization, meaning groups beginning to be opposed to each other, when that begins to happen, you know what happens to ministry? It becomes totally paralyzed. Nothing is going to happen in ministry. And finally, will be death. It's estimated that 3,500 to 4,000 churches will close this year in America. They may still be meeting at 9.45 and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and 7 o'clock on Sunday night and 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, but they are really death, near death. They may be on life support, but they're near death. Nothing is happening. That's sad. Uh, I got a real long here. Symptoms indicative of dry rot. Uh, just jot these down. You may have some blanks here. I can't remember. More concern for programs and purposes. And many churches have become where they're very concerned about their various programs, and they're not as concerned about God's purposes. God gives us the purposes. Programs are man-made, trying to fulfill those purposes. Don't put the cart before the horse, so to speak. More concern for preservation than propagation. 
And increasingly I'm seeing in the churches a growing absence of children and youth. They're the current and next generation. And that tells me that church is unhealthy. When I see a growing median age going higher and higher in a church, that tells me that they're unhealthy. They got some serious thought that needs to go into what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing and get more to a biblical position. More concern for form than function. Let me illustrate it. A number of years ago when I was at the college and seminary, I was invited to go out, fly out to Detroit and speak in a church in Detroit on Sunday. And they flew me out on Saturday, sent me the ticket to fly out and put me up in a motel. And the pastor picked me up Sunday morning and I was to speak Sunday morning and twice and Sunday night. And when we got to the church, he hadn't said anything to me about anything in the church, so I had the messages that I thought God wanted me to bring. And I walked into the building, and right away I could tell uh, things aren't right here. When you walk around, and most people look like they've been sucking on pickle juice for a month, and you can just sense the tension in the air, uh, you know that there's not good things happening in that church. <clears throat> So at lunchtime, he said to me, uh, you're going to eat and be entertained for the afternoon with this couple who are in their middle 70s. They've been pillars of this church for years. So we got to their house, and the wife said, well, you visit with my husband, and when dinner's ready, I'll call you. And so she called us, and as soon as we sat down, they asked me to pray. When I got done praying, one of them said, isn't it terrible how Baptist churches are compromising? And I looked at that wonderful-looking meal, and I could smell it. And I said, do I want to get indigestion this early in the meal? And so I just kind of passed it over my head. And pretty soon, one of them said again, isn't it terrible how Baptist churches are compromising? And it was a great meal. I wasn't ready to get indigestion yet. So I just passed it over one more time. And if you can believe it, a third time, one of them said, isn't it terrible how Baptist churches are compromising? I said, well, what are you talking about? I said, I said to the Lord under my breath, okay, I got you. You want me to talk to him? I'm like Peter. Sometimes you got to get it in threes, and I had to get it in threes that time. So they said, well, if you can believe it, this was the end of the spring. They said, we were in Florida for six weeks. And we are in six different Baptist churches. Every one of them are compromising. I said, well, you still haven't told me what you mean by compromise. Said, well, if you can believe it, in the last church we were in, they did not pray before they took up the offering. I kept a straight face and I said, well, you know, I've been studying the Bible for a while. I don't think I ever read a chapter in a verse that says you have to pray before you take up the offering. And I looked him in the eye and I said, do you know a chapter in a verse that says we have to pray before we take up the offering? Silence. You know how before a tornado hits or a hurricane hits, there's a calm? That's what was happening. And all of a sudden, the hurricane hit. 
And they said, no, we don't know any chapter and verse that says that, but we want to tell you it's compromise, it's wrong, it's sin. I said, whoa, wait a minute, time out. I said, the only time I understand that something is sin is when you violate something that God has said. And if he hasn't said anything, he hasn't had a chapter and verse on it, he doesn't care. I could not make them understand. I began to know why they were having all their trouble in the church. They had done exactly what this statement is saying. They had come to the place where they were more concerned about the form that we pray before we take up the offering than they were about the function of prayer. I asked them in the course of our conversation, was there other prayer in the service? Yes. But they couldn't understand that you still had to pray before you took up. That's happening in a lot of our churches. We get all stressed out and fight over stuff that God hasn't even spoken to or about. If he was very interested, he would tell you about it. And he'd give you a chapter and a verse. Keep going with me. More talk about the past than the future. In other words, a focus on tradition. And in sensitivity to change, we become inflexible, not open to change, more concerned about reputation than responsibility. We're concerned about what others think of us than we are about responsibility and carnal, lazy, and distract and or distracted leadership. Now here's where I want to kind of bring this whole thing about John 15 together. How many of you have a grape vineyard? Anybody? Grape vineyard? It's a very small vineyard, you know, Well, I've never had a grape vineyard, but I have watched others who do have. And what do they have to do every year? Prune. Oh, now we're getting down somewhere. Who established that you got to do that pruning business? Well, God did. Listen to what he says. Every branch, verse 2 of chapter 15 of John, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Why does he prune it? That it may bear more fruit. That's pretty intensive, pretty interesting to me to realize that there is pruning that needs to happen. So when tell me something. When you take one of these branches that has been bearing fruit and you prune it, which means you cut it and take away part of it, has that brought about any change? You changed that plant. You changed that fruit by pruning. I want to suggest God is the author of pruning. Uh, pruning equals change. 
and every church or ministry will progressively deteriorate after a point unless significant planning and effort is expended in the pruning process. There are times when I'm uh, in a church and it's almost like a time warp. It's almost like 50 years ago when I was in ministry. And I wish that I could find a bulletin from 50 years ago and their current bulletin and lay them down here next to each other. I would venture to say there is virtually no difference between them because they have not allowed any change to take place. Change. God is saying that if you want to grow in your fruitfulness, it is going to involve change. If you are opposed to change, I think you're going to find yourself being opposed to God. That's serious. Now, I'll try to make it more clear as we go along here tonight and tomorrow <clears throat> the uh, something that will help you understand that better. But I want to wrap this up by saying this. Where do you think you as a church are on that bell curve? If you look, at, go back to the bell curve another time. People often ask me, at what point can something still be done to turn things around from plateau and decline to growth. And I always take them to this bell curve. And I usually say to them, if you're over on the right-hand side of this bell curve coming down over here, what do you got to do? You got to come back over here. And you got to start coming back up through here. And you've got to work on making sure your beliefs are sharpened up and they're where the Bible is. Your values in the church are where the values ought to be, your organization, that you have a clear purpose and mission of what you're about. And you sharpen that up so that you understand what you're all going to be driving towards. And that your vision and programming is being built in order to fulfill the mission and purpose. Not to sustain something that you've been involved in all these years. That's not the purpose for keeping a program going. Maybe the program needs to be tweeted and needs to be refined or there needs to be part of it changed or maybe the whole program just needs to be retired and you move to something that is more current, something more that is producing fruit today for the glory of God. It's okay. It's man-made. Uh, it's okay to change that, but you cannot change the Word of God that you're going to see in a minute. Anyway, that's where you've got to start out and work your way around again and come down. And I think you'll begin to grow again. And every church that God led me to pastor and the college and seminary, which have been declining for nine years, all of them, I had to take them through that bell curve. And we went over there on the left-hand side and worked our way back up and worked our way back down away from going down. Okay? Everything that is healthy grows. But not everything that grows is healthy. 
For example, cancer. Cancer grows, but is it healthy? There are some churches today that are growing, but I would not call them healthy. They may be part of the merging church movement or other places where they have minimized or ignored some teaching of Scripture. And they're congregating a lot of people because they've got a dynamic speaker and a program that is attractive to people. But I wouldn't call them healthy. But at the other end of the thing, everything that is healthy will grow. That's true in the plant world. That is true in the animal world. That is true in our world. When we are healthy, we will grow. And I believe God wants that to be true of the church world. If we're healthy, we will grow. Okay? That's going to require appropriate and adequate systemic change. Not superficial, not cosmetic kind of changes, but real serious changes that I may have time to cover some tomorrow. Okay? What time is it? Time for me to quit? And I haven't finished, have I? You got some blanks from here on? Can we just fill those in quickly? Most local church programming and practice of yesteryear has lost its effectiveness and fruitfulness. I think that's true. And they were designed for yesteryear. They were designed for the culture of that day. They were designed for that period of time. And they have lost their effectiveness and fruitfulness, which ought to be a signal to our churches that we need to think about what we're using to accomplish our mission. God has clearly laid out in the New Testament his purposes or functions. Worship, evangelism, discipleship edification, community or fellowship, and ministry. God has clearly made those our purpose, our functions. And we need to refocus those and seek them. And I think there's a lack of fruit in two of those God-designed local church functions or purposes, especially for our day, evangelism and discipleship. And I've already tried to help you understand about the issue of evangelism. Uh, there's a growing unchurched element in our culture today, uh, 100 million and growing. In 1991, 21% of our population in America was unchurched. Today, 34% are unchurched. Uh, each new generation becomes increasingly unchurched. Builders, boomers, busters, bridgers. You can see We've gone from 49% of the bridgers, or builders down to the bridgers of 70% are unchurched. Uh, it's a growing thing of an unchurched population. And uh, studies tell us on average only one person is reached for Christ for every 85 church members in America. But in a growing church, one for every 20 members. Uh, that's just another way to 
look at your church and see how effective it is. In the realm of discipleship, the same kind of issues. There's a lessening amount of discipleship happening in our churches. We used to, in the college, test freshmen about their Bible knowledge when they came in. And it seemed like every year they were doing more poorly. (laughs) Um, Which says our churches were not doing a good job of discipling kids. And you can look, Barna and all these guys will substantiate that among Christian people, the things that the world is doing, they are doing almost in the same degree. Uh, Whether you want to talk about abortions or you want to talk about adultery, you want to talk about profanity, vulgar words. I am amazed sometimes at listening to some of the leaders in some of our churches, the vocabulary that they use today, which seems to be okay to them, that I feel is vulgar. Uh, Well, you want to talk about out-of-wedlock pregnancies, divorce? Uh, Everything indicates we're doing a less effective job of discipling our people. And many churches that are not doing well in reaching the unchurched and in discipling their believers could be characterized in the following way. The presence and power of God is not sensed in the worship services. Their services are flat, lifeless, dead, Little or no spiritual energy in the services. There is no sense of God's powerful presence and work. There's no freshness when it comes to the personal testimony of the majority of the congregation. The prayer ministries are anemic. Significantly more effort. Energy and resources are being invested in managing and caring for the members and not the unchurched. The pastor and leadership are not modeling outreach evangelism on a personal level. They may talk about it, but they don't. you don't see in their own lives the same thing happening that they're trying to get the congregation to do. Quickly, anybody got a question? You want to fire away? We're going to stop. We've been at it for an hour and a half, almost, an hour and 15 minutes. What I'm trying to do tonight is paint what's really existing in our churches. And is it satisfactory? Does it really hit where John 15 is? Or do we do, need to do some serious thinking, praying? and analyzing what we're doing and what we ought to be doing to be more effective and bear more fruit. Anybody got a question? Observation. In light of the body, the body of Christ, the church, do you think part of it is the members of the body don't understand what it is anymore as well? That they don't understand the function of the body, they don't understand the importance of the body? I think I can be true to some degree and some, more, more true in some churches than others. Uh, the churches that are growing most dynamically today are churches who have really focused that and everybody in that congregation is on that target. I'm just thinking in light of that discipleship comment, I know 
we learn quite a bit of it down at the MBBI. But if there's not personal interaction in that discipleship process for the growing, right? You're producing servants in that body that are just filling those gaps or taking those places kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I guess that's just an observation. Good. Yeah. Or why eventually those churches close. God finally just closes them. You're so far off base, you're so far off target of where my church ought to be, I'll just put you out of existence. He takes the light out. The light just kind of dims and goes out. Good. Good observation. I asked the question just in a discussion with Chris at uh, Pastor Wayne's with all the infidelity and the pastorate and the different things going on. And, and again, with workers coming up in the churches, and sometimes you wonder, with the fruits that are being bore and being sinful, whether they're saved in the first place. Right. With, with the lack, again, maybe that's where my thoughts were, with the lack of discipleship and lack of interaction, maybe we're, we're without loving and confronting in the body. We're, right. we're just letting people come up and then they're teaching in turn truths that they don't even understand. Exactly. And <clears throat> that's what affects the spiritual energy in the church. Mm -hmm. The more carnal or the more of the unsafe people that may be in places of influence, mm -hmm. uh, you are diminishing the spiritual energy in the church. Mm -hmm. Oh, the adversaries there. Yep. Good. Well, you ready to pray? You got. You want to preach a sermon? Nope, I don't. Okay. It's just that one thought in there, and I think I think we have come to a real interesting point. You have to see what is the issue before you try any attempt to fix it. That one statement: fruitfulness is a result of the son's life being reproduced in each of his disciples' life in the local church. That's, the, that's what salvation is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's to be growing into his life. So, wow. Great night. A lot to think about. Hope you'll think not just about broad picture, but where is it you are at in your church? The ministries that you're involved with. Where's the bell curve, right? I mean, that's what we're talking through here is to make it, let's make this personal. Let's just take it all in and say it was a great, great weekend. This is not a, a meeting where we're going to make a lot of decisions. This is directional. This is getting us started in a greater conversation. So, Milo, thank you very much. You're welcome. And looking forward to tomorrow. Uh, flip side of the coin. I think we need that. You need to come back, right? Get yeah. the flip side tomorrow. Let's pray together and ask God just to help us. Dear God, we thank you.